0: You're listening to KMUN Astoria 91.9, KTCB Tillamook 89.5. The,
1: the beating went on from, as I said, 2 o'clock in the morning till about 6 o'clock in the morning. I was lying face down uh, with guys had been jumping on me, kicking me, kicking the guys next to me. We were being beaten with uh, knotted towels, had hot coffee poured on us.
0: And we're talking with Joseph Stevenson, who in August of 1961 at the age of 18 became a Freedom Rider. Who were the Freedom Riders and what were they trying to accomplish?
1: A Freedom Ride was when people got on buses and integrated groups and traveled interstate uh, into facilities where there were segregation laws uh, in the states in general and in the waiting rooms and bus stations or train stations in particular and when i went to chicago um, in april to tape the oprah winfrey show i ended up sitting in the audience next to a man who told me that he had gone on a number of freedom rides in 1947 which i had no idea about his name was george hauser and he was 94 years old uh this year, and uh, quite articulate and spry. So I learned a lot about history and how we were sort of uh, latecomers uh, on the scene in a lot of ways. But in 1961, the attempt was made to get the federal government to enforce a law that had been established by a Supreme Court decision in 1946, but would not be enforced by the states and the federal government declined to intervene. So that was the legal basis on which we, we made our rides. The idea was to, I guess, was to so severely embarrass the federal government uh, that if the states refused to enforce the law and protect the riders, the federal government would be uh, forced to intervene.
0: Southern states had ignored the Supreme Court ruling and we're living in a state of apartheid at that time.
1: Well, certainly, in uh, in most respects, they did. Uh, they there were separate restaurants, uh, bus you know waiting rooms in in transportation facilities, uh, drinking fountains were labeled white and colored, bathrooms, pretty much all schools that I mentioned, pretty much all public facilities were either segregated or reserved exclusively for whites. A lot of occupations were reserved exclusively for whites.
0: When you made your Freedom Ride, they had been in progress for three months, and some awful things had happened. Freedom Riders had been severely beaten. Buses had been set on fire. Freedom Riders had been sent to prison and put on work gangs. It was dangerous business. You were 18 years old living in Los Angeles, a student. What made you decide that you were going to do this?
1: Well, Roger, I grew up in a family in which the idea of um, of justice, equal rights for, for people, uh, all people, uh, was uh, a byword. And uh, my parents uh, subscribed to publications that covered these kinds of movements uh, and encouraged them. So it was somewhat of a surprise to me when they they were they did not immediately endorse the idea of their son going down to be arrested in the American South. Um, I saw those photographs of the bus on fire. I saw the photograph uh, of James Peck uh, badly, badly beaten, his face bloody and and stitched together, um, and. And I, like most of the country and a lot of the world, was was shocked to see this. Um, I was further impressed by the fact that the Freedom Riders did not quit at that point, uh, but they kept more and more people, stepped up, and volunteered to go south. This came to a head for me in June, and, and I'm amazed at how quickly these events world by the first bus left on may the fourth the big attack that where the bus was burned and the the public first became aware that this was happening was i think may fourteenth on june the fifteenth uh... you know a month later i attended a rally in los angeles that was put on uh... mostly to raise money basically raise money and support and awareness uh, for the Freedom Rides, not necessarily to recruit Freedom Riders. But Martin Luther King Jr. spoke there. Uh, Reverends uh, Ralph Abernathy and Fred Shuttlesworth as well, the names that are not as well known but were every bit as important in the movement. Uh, they all spoke and a gospel singer from Chicago named Mahalia Jackson sang. And it it was it wasn't uh, it was when maheya sang that i i felt the spirit that i had to do something and maybe i was available to do that being a student being on summer vacation not having to be back at school until late september i first got the idea that maybe i could go i have to talk a little more about music than most people want to hear because I am a musician and I have to tell you that it was music uh, to a large degree that that moved my heart you know music has a way of going to the heart and ideals and philosophies and words can penetrate just so far but music can can turn you around and turn you inside out and when Mejia got the spirit she began to move around the stage, she forgot where the microphone was, and was dancing back and forth. Uh, she had a one accompanist, a large woman named Mildred Falls, who was pounding away on the piano. Uh she great. She was a great player. And the two of them were like two women possessed. And Mahalia was dancing, shaking her head. Her hairpins were flying out. Her hair was flying out. And the whole 15,000 people in the L.A. sports arena just came alive and erupted. And I erupted along with them. And the next thing I knew, well, two months later, I was on a train to Texas.
0: We shall all be first. Things the Freedom Riders introduced was the concept of nonviolence. The Freedom Riders never fought back against their assailants. Did you have training in nonviolence in Los Angeles?
1: No, we definitely had training. Our ride was organized by the same group that sent the fir- the first bus uh, core, the Congress of Racial Equality, and they had nonviolence was their uh, their strategy, their tactic. Uh, to create a moral high ground uh, in this struggle. Not not every freedom rider was a philosophical believer that nonviolence could could change uh, the world, but th- this was a tactic that everyone agreed to. I don't know that I was uh, committed to nonviolence uh, philosophically at that time. Uh, I'm now a pacifist, but I wasn't then. Uh, but we did have some training, where you, uh, we did some role playing and got subjected to some uh, verbal and physical abuse uh, just to have a little practice. We were told the best way is to protect yourself. Uh, basically, if you're on the ground, or roll over and cover your head and do the best to protect yourself. But, uh, you know, you do not resist, fight back, uh, push away, anything like that. Uh, and I have to say that the Freedom Rides did not uh, were not the first part of the civil rights movement to use nonviolence. I think that was a tactic that was used pretty much from from the beginning. Uh, I mentioned the 1947 Riders; they were trained in nonviolence. Uh, Martin Luther King certainly was, uh, in many ways, a disciple of Gandhi, and taught nonviolence in during the Montgomery bus boycott, which was in the mid 50s. Uh, by I think 1958 to 60 were the early uh, lunch counter sit-ins. These were all nonviolent movements. And uh, in Chicago um, last month, I I got to meet some of the people who taught nonviolence to the Freedom Riders. It's amazing. We're in this little cusp where a lot of these historical figures are still alive, uh, and it was it was amazing for me to to. Uh, rub elbows with them, and have a chance to talk to them. I felt like I was walking in the land of the Giants.
0: You got on the train in Los Angeles and headed for Houston, Texas. What was it about Houston that made it the target of this particular freedom ride?
1: Up to that time, uh, almost all of the rides, the, the destination had been Jackson, Mississippi. Um, originally, the the destination was to be New Orleans. They started, I can't remember, in Washington, D.C. or from other places, but uh, they were always planning to sort of cross the Deep South and end up in New Orleans. What happened is that first in Alabama, it became clear to the federal government that the state law enforcement Well, I was going to say could not, but that's not true. They would not protect the Freedom Rides. They simply refused to do it, and they got attacked uh, over and over again. After promising the the Kennedys, uh, John the President and Robert the Attorney General, that that they would and could do it, uh, then they would drop the ball and not do it. And after the Kennedys got betrayed uh, at least twice, and maybe three times, they said that's enough, and they sent in troops. And uh, the the troops from that point on uh, protected the Freedom Riders uh, and got them to the Mississippi border. At the same time, Robert Kennedy made a deal with Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi, that if they would protect the Freedom Riders from being attacked and, and injured, beaten, that they would not, the federal government would not interfere with Mississippi's attempt to enforce their own state segregation laws so what happened was once the the freedom rides got as far as mississippi they were allowed to pass without uh to jackson and then as soon as they got off the bus they were arrested and sent to prison they sent them to one of the most notorious prisons in the south Parchman, and uh and they probably thought that this would deter further, uh, you know, further waves of freedom riders coming because this place had such a reputation. This was not a city jail. This was not a walk in the park. Uh, but to their surprise, I think uh, more and more freedom riders came. Uh, I think probably at least three hundred came, and uh, their goal was to show Mississippi that there were a lot of people willing to commit civil disobedience and fill up their prisons. As long as they wanted to enforce these kinds of laws, they were going to have to uh, feel some pain. In August, CORE decided to open a second front, as it were, and they decided to send uh, a bus to Texas. Why they picked out Texas and Houston in particular, I don't know. Uh, So we were Theoretically going to be the first first troops on a new front. Uh, that should have given me a clue that we were not going to get a warm reception, um, much as the first bus got burned in Alabama. Uh, but I was 18 and uh, bulletproof, I thought, sure. and uh, wasn't thinking too much about that. Besides, I thought by that time there had been enough publicity, and, and the world's attention were on this movement, and that um, they that the powers that be in the South would be have have to be extremely stupid to uh, attack and abuse any more freedom riders at this point. They'd kind of been there and done that. Um, As it turns out, I was wrong. (laughs) But in any case, 11 of us, um, white and black, male and female, uh, traveled from L.A. to Houston on a train, leaving 9th of August, uh, 1961, and arriving two days later in Houston at the train station. What
0: was your ride like? And what happened when you arrived in Houston?
1: I don't remember a thing about the ride from L.A. to Houston. (laughs) I was probably—my thoughts were elsewhere. Uh, When we got to Houston, we were joined by nine Houston students, all black, uh, all young. And these were veterans of a sit-in movement that had been going on for years in Houston. These uh, young people had already integrated a long list of lunch counters and public facilities in Houston— Uh, Some of them had been arrested. Most of them had been arrested at least a half a dozen times. And I remember one uh, young lady had—this was her ninth arrest. And that has always— you know, meeting them and hearing their story has always made me very humble about my small part in this. I I went down south. I got arrested once. I went back to my life and really did not take any further part in civil disobedience in the civil rights movement, whereas these people had been doing it for years. And uh, so it was very impressive to meet them. They joined us. So 20 of us sat in in the coffee shop inside the train station we were definitely interstate passengers, and then we were joined by some that weren't interstate passengers. But we, we sat at the counter. The waitresses asked, addressed the white people, and I was one of them, you know, what would you like to order? And I said, uh, well, I'm thinking about it, but while I'm thinking you can take the order of my friend Charles here, uh, who is black, and she said something um uh, to the effect that uh, that Charles would be welcome to come around the back door and they would uh, they they could uh, dispense some food to him there, but they didn't serve uh, his kind in the in the, at the counter. So our reply to that was, well, okay, well, we'll just wait here until you change your mind. And after you know they they were expecting us. This was no secret, and uh, so the the police came and uh, read out, uh, ordered us to disperse, and then arrested us all for unlawful assembly. Once we got arrested, we were, of course, uh, segregated by race and gender. The whole uh, pyramid of privilege got turned on its head in the Harris County Jail. The four white men, Freedom Riders, were put into a... a tank of with fifty white Texans, who were told by the jailers that they were, if they wanted to have a little fun with us, they weren't they weren't going to interfere. So they beat the crap out of us for until about six o'clock in the morning. The white women jailers told the white women the same thing. If you want to beat up these freedom riders? They they didn't use uh, as polite an expression as that. Um, you know go ahead we're not going to interfere uh the some of the white women apparently wanted to do that they thought that would be a good idea and some of them were against it ended up coming to a vote oh <laughs> they had a democratic process they voted by a narrow margin not to beat up the white women freedom riders the black men were basically okay, but there were a few psychopaths in the black men's tank who were accustomed to beating up any fresh troops that came through the door just for something to do. Uh, and But the the black free, male freedom riders were protected by the other uh, inmates who said, no, no, you don't touch these guys, you have to come through us first. Uh, and I'm told that the black women had an absolutely great time. They were not only treated like heroes and, and queens they um, didn't even have to eat jail food The trustee prisoners who had special privileges and and ran little concessions in the in the different sections uh, we we had ours in 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 our tank but uh, anyway the the trustees in in the black women's tank, had supplies of food, uh, edible food, so the black women uh, not only didn't get beaten and were treated really nicely but didn't even have to eat the jail food. So in that case, everything got turned on its end. <laughs> Tell us more about what happened
0: to you in jail.
1: The, the beating went on from, as I said, 2 o'clock in the morning till about 6 o'clock in the morning. At six o'clock in the morning um, after lying, I was lying face down uh, with guys had been jumping on me kicking me, kicking the guys next to me we were being beaten with uh, knotted towels had hot coffee poured on us um, the other three men lay on their backs uh, for reasons that I didn't understand I didn't even know what they were doing because I had my face down and uh, as we had been trained. And and largely for that reason, I didn't get injured as badly as, as the other. Uh, the fellow next to me had his head kicked into the bars and bled profusely. And I was pretty worried about him because I suddenly realized I was lying in a pool of blood. Uh, and I, I whispered to him, asking me if he was okay, and he sounded okay. So I... There was no great deal I could do about it, so I, uh, we just I just lay there. It, in the morning, uh, the first sound was the sound of the doors sliding open, and the jailers brought in a wash tub, an old fashioned wash tub full of coffee. All of the prisoners produced cups. Everybody seemed to have a cup. Of course, we didn't have cups, uh, and besides, we were not sure at that point what was going to happen next. We sort of huddled together uh, off to one side. We were afraid even to look at people uh, just to make eye contact seem dangerous at that point. We had no idea what was going to happen next. And as we were standing in this little knot of people, after a few minutes, uh, one of the prisoners, a young man, probably my age or maybe just a couple of years older, came up to me and held out a coffee cup and I was afraid to reach for it because I'd I thought maybe if I reached for it, he'd, he'd hit me or I didn't know what was going to go on. So I just looked, looked at him and he looked at me and said, here, take it, have some coffee. So I took the cup, went over to the tub, again, kind of half expecting to get jumped or thrown in the tub or something. And, uh, but nobody touched me. I dipped in, dipped out a cup of coffee and Roger, I can tell you honestly, that was the best cup of coffee I've ever had in my entire life. that That was one hundred percent the milk of human kindness, that cup. And uh, so So my story had had an angel in it, uh, almost from the beginning. And over the next four days, I found it fascinating being in there. Well, for one thing, I was young and naive, and I'd, I'd never uh, gotten to hang out with, with 100 criminals before. Uh, it, but they were curious. And, uh, you know, after after they the, the steam dissipated a little bit, they began, well, what possessed you to come, you know, 2,000 miles uh, to get arrested and your ass kicked in a Texas jail? So we'd have to talk about uh, our feelings and why we did it, and they would ask us uh, questions. Uh, one guy uh, actually yelled us at the top of his lungs. He said, uh, um, did, what did he say? Why, why do you love niggers? He said, why are you a nigger lover? And I said uh, as calmly as I could, uh, I love everybody. And, and it, it just kind of stopped him. <laughs> he didn't know where to go with that. He just kind of shook his head and walked away. But it, it was interesting to me. I was actually disappointed to leave. Uh, the other, my three companions were, they had cracked ribs, cracked head. Uh, they were not fascinated. Uh, they wanted to get out in the worst way. So, uh, so we all bailed out together.
0: What kinds of things did the Freedom Rides achieve in this country?
1: Well, by September, by late September, the Interstate Commerce Commission issued an order for all of the signs of uh, of segregation, white, colored, waiting rooms, drinking fountains, bathrooms, all of these to be removed um, after a lot of foot-dragging. The Kennedys' foot-dragged their way through through every step of this process— Mostly for political reasons. They, the Democratic Party at that time, their base was the South. And if they were to take strong stands for civil rights, they would lose it, which in fact happened. You know, it's just playing itself out today. Now the, the South is solidly Republican.
0: If someone wanted you to speak at their school, how would they get in contact with you?
1: Okay, anyone who would like to get in contact with me, uh, you'd be more than welcome to uh, to email me at stevenson. that's J-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N, jstevenson3998 at charter.net. And uh, I, uh, I'm very much interested in speaking to students. Uh, they are the future uh and in, uh, in my experience, they're very interested in this topic. Once you give them a little information, uh, they, they are eager to learn about this. And they were born, you know, a long time after all of these events happened. And uh, what they get in school, depending where they go to school, is little to nothing about this history. And I think it's interesting both from a strictly a historical standpoint to know how these laws got changed and from a practical standpoint is to know a little bit of the history of the issues that we're still grappling with that we've talked about during this interview.
0: I saw your mugshot from August eleventh, nineteen 1961, and I must say you looked very, very, very young. There were a lot of really young people on the Freedom Rides, young people with a sense of justice, I would guess.
1: I I think... the the major effect for me was that I had, at one point in my life early on, uh, done something unusual, interesting, challenging, and and dangerous, and it it was one of the best things I ever did. It gave me kind of it gave me the influence that when life presents you with the opportunity to do things like that. It, you should you should give it a lot of thought. I mean, don't be stupid, but uh, it it could be the best thing you ever did. And if you let it slide by, mm. the I met one woman in Chicago who had done something remarkable, which I don't have time to tell you the whole story. But but she was not a freedom rider, but she stepped out of her own family to help freedom riders uh, who were being beaten in her own front yard. And she was only twelve years old at the time. Uh, she recently went back to the town where she grew up, where she, where this happened to her at the age of twelve, and they asked her what her advice would be to young people today. And she said, um, "I, I think when you're you're presented with the opportunity to to do something, to do something good, do something." for a cause bigger than yourself uh, if you fail to do it you diminish as a person and that's another way of, of putting the same thing, if you, if you do it you grow as a person you, your horizons expand your, your courage is bolstered and you have the gumption to do interesting unusual things with your life
0: Joseph Stevenson. Thank you very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. On my way Glory, hallelujah On my
1: way If you don't go Don't you hinder me If you don't go